0: Chris and Rob um, and myself, so any questions?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. Um, so I'd say to that, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's more principle that verse, than, than literal. Um, I, I don't know about you, I've tried to sleep on a fight, and I didn't really get a good night's sleep anyway. So, um, But I do agree with you, Chris, in that um, for it to be a genuine apology, sometimes we do need to absorb it. So sometimes I need to, if it's during the day, I need to go for a walk, it might take me a few hours. Sometimes it does take me a few days. Um, that verse, I think, um, yeah, I guess it is a uh, uh, stated in, in principle. So, ideally, um, we ought to be willing to confess immediately. Uh, sometimes, being the sinner that I am, I do need a, a few days and um, I do uh, confess. But, um, yeah, the verse, I guess, uh, is in principle not literally, especially if you argue at night. Yeah. Good question. That
2: answer? Yeah, yeah. Pretty well. So usually at the end of the night, I'm pretty well convinced it's Sarah's fault, (laughs) (laughs) and so I don't know. I don't know what to apologise for. (laughs) It takes a day or so to work out that I actually have something to (laughs) apologise for, and that's. So I think the key is not to have the anger. The key is to not to let the sun go down on your anger, rather than actually find an apology that
1: would be mine oh no that's brilliant you've just just given me the answer and that is um, I guess don't let the sun go down on your wrath once you get to that point where you've realised you've sinned but if you haven't realised you've sinned then you haven't realised you've sinned you think it's her fault so it might take you a couple of days or a couple of hours but once you've come to that point where you realise you have sinned then confess straight away
0: Um, if I can speak to that. I, I do think, like personally, I can't sleep if, if, there's not, if there's not unity. So I will stay up late late into the night in order to achieve unity because I just can't sleep otherwise. But I do, if, you, if that's not you, I do think the principles you pointed out is that, um, that you want to affirm that there's not... that you want to pursue this, you want to affirm that you, there is love regardless, you know, those, those sort of affirmations, I think, are what, what you want, yeah. I have a need to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can sleep anyway. Yeah.
2: <laughs> think,
0: that in one of, the, one of the lists of spiritual gifts, or it? <laughs> Any other questions? Well, I mean, that's a good point to understand that side sort of the way. So, how did you balance that? And also, the problem
3: of trying to fix things rather than actually just missing them. So, I suppose that's a point. How it
0: should be. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely agree that you shouldn't apologize for anything you haven't done wrong. So, a- apologizing just to achieve peace when you don't actually think you've done anything wrong is lying. It's totally not on. Yeah. So I, I agree with you there. And you are probably come from the game because you probably need to it the repeat the question, Tom,
3: when
0: Okay, Nathan just said repeat the question, so I'll do that. <laughs> I, so. I might comment on that just a little bit um,
2: the, the point of, either Tom made or Rob made in the talk was when a person says sorry, forgive them um, the, the key is sorry is one part and obviously owning your sin is very important but sorry is just a word And it is difficult to say, I'll get it, I get that. But it's also easy to say. Uh, And so what you need is something systemic. And if you don't actually go and identify the actual sin, and you do not actually, like, put words to that sin. So there's that verse in the Old Testament that it says, you know, you're repenting to God. It says, take words with you. It actually name the sin and then say, okay, this is possibly a the settings and I keep repeating it um, so you're looking for a trend of reduction as opposed to an ultimate stop sometimes, it will get there but you know, you're starting it at least because you're not perfect in your repentance but at least you're trying to build something systemic to stop it, repeating again if it's just a sorry and, and then you sort of you know, start a rainy day hoping everything's going to be better, you're pretty well going to be disappointed in about a week.
4: Um,
2: and, and you haven't really achieved much. Um, well, I, I certainly think marriage is important. I think it's wonderful that we as a church um, you know, actually have these days and talk about it. But the proper goal is really sanctification, serving God. And so even the reason we get married is not because we're just lonely, and that is true, we're that way. Uh, but it's so that, like one book he says, if it's better to be single and serve God, be single, if it's better to be married and serve God, get married, get married so you can serve God. And so, if we're not dealing with the system of the sin, not going to the heart of the sin, you're not achieving a lot
3: Yeah, Chris, uh, on that, sometimes it's like, I guess it's like maybe our uh, issue, but we can't identify the sin, and so you, like, you genuinely say sorry, you move over it. a week later, a month later, the same fight comes up, and then it continues like for a year, like, you do the sorry thing and then do it, but it keeps coming up. Um, when do you recommend like maybe going to someone outside the relationship, like a pastor and an older couple, or, if it's the same, like, you know what I mean? I'll ask for a friend, in
2: Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he had his hand up the minute you asked the question. So, I knew that was the case straight away. <laughs> now he's got both hands up. <laughs> oh, I, I tend to think of those things, uh, generally, you're looking for long haul, you're not going to resolve a lot of things. I mean, if you go into a house on fire and you see a baby burning in the bedroom, as well as that, you see, you know, a photo of the grandmother in the lounge room burning, what are you going to go for, the lounge room photo or the baby? You're going to just walk past the lounge room photo of the grandmother, um, let the grandmother burn, and go where the baby is, that's not literally I mean, and then grab the baby and leave, you know. So, what are you doing here? I think the goal is to get the Word of God into your marriage first and constantly submit to the means and the Word of God. So, the Word of God, read, discussed uh, regularly, suddenly I think it gives a picture that you're willing to submit to the Word of God. Yeah. And when you're willing to submit to the Word of God, uh, generally you'll find a trend in the family, and it will sort it out over the long term. I, I don't know how God does it. I don't know how the Holy Spirit works and changes us despite our hardness, but we just have to commit ourselves to Him and trust Him to do the work gradually. Now, certainly naming this and talking to a person in the church or a minister might uh, help. I'm not telling you, don't come talk to me, but I I don't know sometimes if we're not of the same matter as you are.
1: There's no message. Just with regards to your question about what point do you go to a a minister, I think ideally um, it's the three of you. It's Christ as the head of the home, husband and wife, and that's the ideal scenario. But we're not perfect, and I think... um, (laughs) Going to another Christian uh, brother or another Christian minister in the church can be helpful, but his advice is going to get you back to that ideal um, Christ as the head, husband and wife. But I think it's a good thing every now and then, um, and a humbling thing for if a a couple are stuck to seek uh, external godly counsel.
3: I have another question from George, as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was full of questions today. <laughs> no, uh, this is my, <laughs> uh, What does the Bible say about forgiveness without repentance? And like, for context, um, living with an unbelieving spouse, that unbelieving spouse isn't going to be asking for forgiveness explicitly. Yeah. Or another context might be in a, in a believing marriage or a, or a relationship in the church where it's not explicitly... Like, say, your mother-in-law is often sinning against you, but you want to forgive her. You know, but she's not explicit, or your wife, anyone. What does the Bible say about forgiveness without explicit request
0: for repentance? So the question is... Um, what does the Bible say about how to forgive, or should you forgive, or what do you, what do, you do about forgiveness when there is no repentance on the other, from the other person? Rob?
1: Sure, so, um, I think our responsibility as Christians is to be forgiving and to have forgiving hearts. So if someone sins against me, I ought to, because of the heart that God has given me, be willing to forgive. Uh, express verbally that willingness to forgive. If that person's not repentant, they don't enjoy uh, that forgiveness, and, and that's between them and God. But until they're repentant, there cannot be true reconciliation. But I've fulfilled my responsibility before God as a Christian. But they penalize themselves when there's no they've sinned against me, they haven't repented. I've got a heart that's willing and wanting to forgive. They don't repent, um, there's no true reconciliation half a space and, and
0: then um, leave them in God's the hands. yeah I think the, the biblical model of repentance is the gospel um, of, of reconciliation so I think Rob's right that you cannot have reconciliation without both repentance and forgiveness uh, however there are explicit commands do not be bitter for instance um, so that's where the heart of forgiveness or forgiving attitude comes in being willing to forgive You can picture it, Doug Wilson uses the analogy. uh, You should have forgiveness sitting, waiting by the door um, for when they come knocking. So you're not holding on to anything, um, but there might not be full reconciliation in the relationship. Does that make sense? Okay, so how do you put
3: that into a Christian marriage? You both sit around waiting. Do
0: you want to speak to that, Chris?
2: I'll just go one step back. I don't know exactly how this works, but one thing I would say is there's a lot of sin in our marriages that uh, we just really uh, let love cover. We don't go and deal with every single sin, every single time. I go back to the fire. You've got a baby and you've got a photo of your grandmother. Which one to get? You just deal with the critical ones first. Uh, You can't fix everything uh, up. And some things, uh, you know, like for instance, we we will have differences on things that are not biblical. Like, I don't want any pictures on the fridge, Sarah wants a whole bunch of pictures on the fridge. Now, there's a sense in which there is sin in that because I could say, I've told you I don't want any pictures on the fridge and you should obey. Uh, but you just let it go, really. um, And th- that's basically what happens. And, you Did know, I'll, I'll open up the Can I
3: interrupt you? Are you saying letting go is forgiveness then?
2: Oh, I think something? it's just basically what Rob spoke about. It's actually studying your wife and dwelling okay. with her with understanding. And it's actually just letting go of those differences and even the unwillingness to change. You're just saying, okay, that's it. Now I might open the fridge a little bit more vigorously so a few photos fall off every now and then. But but the reality is I'm not going to make a big deal of it. And there's a lot of things I'm not going to make a big deal of because the big things, um, you know, she supports coming to church. She's keen to bring the kids uh, to the Word of God. She... Uh, loves and cares for the family so there's a whole bunch of other things I just
0: think chunk in so the, the biblical principle there is love covers a multitude of sins yeah and I think that that's true in like covenantal relationships like we don't you, have you confessed, confessed every single sin you've ever committed to God no you haven't um, and you never will because you don't even know half of them And yet, because we have said to God that we are sorry for all of our sins and we sort of caught them like that and we've entered into a covenantal relationship with Him which is one based on the fact that God is willing to forgive us uh, and that we are repenting and that He has committed to us forever um, He covers a lot of our sins in the individual detail of it. But I think that love covers a multitude of sins is true insofar as you are not remembering them and not bitter about them and are actually covering them. So if there's a sin that you are not covering, um, well, either you need to properly cover it and like not remember it and not keep rooting on it, or you need to deal with it, you need to bring it and, and talk to your spouse about it. Does that make sense?
1: The I guess uh, practically in a, in, if you were to apply it to marriage and let's just say um, the husband offended his wife, she forgives him for that offence but he's not repentant, then just like with any other relationship, there can't be true reconciliation until he's repentant. Uh, what does she do in that case? She um, needs to bear with him. She needs to um, practice love covering a multitude of sins. But is there going to be... Um, uh, pure reconciliation. Not until he's repentant. What does she do in that case? She can pray. She can be patient. God's in control. Um, God's using all things to work out for good. He's uh, developing her patience. Developing, giving her an opportunity to suffer for righteous sake. And same is true, vice versa. Just trying to sort of add just some practical, you know, practicality to your specific question.
0: If you're still hurting, Chris.
2: I say this to husbands and wives, and this is not gonna be, you know, anything really, those nice books that Tom showed you. But uh, no one sort of twisted your arm when you decided to go down the aisle. You actually put your hand up and said, I'm gonna get married. You actually made the choice and the decision. So the sort of thing is, sitting Oh, why am I getting hurt? And I get that, I totally accept that, and I'm not very good at being understanding of her, to be honest, I'm not very good at that at all. Um, But I will say this, we chose to be married, and in a sense, we sort of deserve what we get. And and God's actually given us, God's actually given us the very wife we need, the very husband we need,
1: uh, because he knows better. He really does know. Um, just to add to that uh, as Chris said I don't think it's possible to forgive when there's hurt so the hurt needs to be dealt with Um, I'm a bit opposite I'm a bit of a softy inside I sound very loud and tough but um, I get hurt quick it takes me sometimes a couple of hours to get over it so I get hurt quick and I get over it quick if that makes sense God makes us all different but when I'm um, hurt that hurt needs to be dealt with and then I, I ponder upon the scriptures. I ponder upon the mercy that God has shown me, the forgiveness that God has shown me. Um, and as Tom said, that this is one practical way that helps me die to myself and not be so self-absorbed. Because me being hurt, when it's real, I'm not negating it, but I, I really need to die to myself and realise um, I'm not much better. I um, recently got hurt and offended because heard somebody was speaking bad about me. But then I was reminded of a, uh, of a saying of Charles Spurgeon that, that said, when somebody speaks ill of you, um, don't be mad at them. You're actually worse than what they've said about you. And that actually helped me. That helped me get over my hurt. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that die to yourself, pondering on the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, helps me not be absorbed by my hurt and then um, helps me actually bless those that hurt me. Like in a practical way and be um, merciful to them because I've received so much mercy I've been forgiven much so I, not to be, I have no right to be upset with them and God's working out a plan he's, he's using them to, um, to actually sanctify me
0: yeah I, I agree with everything there the only thing I would add is um, I think we should aim for, for marriages where we can talk about the things that hurt us without it being a bitter and and angry conversation. Um, I think it's in the jabs, where he talks about a lot of um, counselling sessions that he has with married couples where they come in and they unleash all their hurts, and the other the other spouse looks over and goes, "I didn't know you. I didn't know you didn't like me doing that. You know, why didn't you tell me?" Um, so I think part of the problem is we, we sort of brood on our hurts, and then it it vomits out of us in harsh and angry language but if you come and say hey like Shamira, I, I prefer you know when you do this it's it's difficult for me like I, I don't like it for this reason or whatever i just want to let you know like i'm going to work on on denying myself and dealing with it but i just want to let you know that particular thing is quite irritating i think that's a good conversation to have
3: hey. Uh, in your talk, Rob, you you mentioned that Paul says submission like what, uh, and he links it back to submission as a um, as an employee or as a citizen in a government, yeah. but you also said it's different. So I was just going to ask, can you elaborate on the differences and the similarities between submission in those contexts?
0: I think if, ever, if I could hear it, everyone must be able to hear it. So. I
1: think you also saw a repeat for the
3: recording, is that right? Yeah, I am recording it, so. so you're oh, okay, so
0: the difference between submission in the different areas in one the three um,
1: so when he says likewise he's saying just as they're practicing submission I want you to practice submission to your own husband so that uh, is the same so he's saying just as they're practicing uh, a submission you need to practice submission that the practice of submission is the same thing my statement by Saying it's a, a bit different, um, is that, especially in first century concept of um, uh, slavery and so forth, it's different here in the sense that um, not so much the practice of submission, but the fact that she's a fellow heir, she's a child of God, she's of equal worth and dignity. That is like the big difference that I was trying to point out. Um, the similarity in the practical practice, he's saying to them, you live in an unjust world, you live in a hostile world, you live in a world where you're going through suffering and persecution, uh, but this is how you live in this kind of world as a Christian. You need to be tender hearted, you need to be forgiving, even with a harsh um, master, you still need to submit. So the similarity, the biggest similarity that I, I would take from that is just like you say to us to be submissive to our boss who's far from perfect, wife, be submissive to your husband who's also far from perfect. That would be the biggest similarity that I would pick up from that. And the um, biggest difference is the fact that uh, really it's two separate things. She's my wife. She's the daughter of the king. I'm laying down my wife for her. The other context is, you know, slave and master. It's, um different rights, different... That's that's what I was trying to sort of make a distinction. In. I don't know if that answers your question, mate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's all I can think of. I'm sure there's more similarities there but they're the two main ones that you know I just drew up. Maybe you guys can think those.
2: I might point out the differences. But God has sovereignly put three institutions in society. There's uh, government, there's um, family and um, Church. The church. Thank you. And <laughs> amazing for you um, and the three overlap to some degree. Um, so there's a sense in which in that sphere you are responsible to submit to your husband in the uh, sphere of work. You're responsible to submit to uh, work in the sphere of uh, state or church. You're responsible to submit to the state of the church. So it's also different spheres that's being alerted to
4: there.
0: Any other questions? No. Yeah.
4: Wow.
5: For example, let's... <laughs> This has never happened, I never argued with my wife. Let's say you and your wife, like, your wife gets, or you get upset with your wife for something. You know, they repent, you forgive each other, you move on by the grace of God, and then say a few months later it happens again. Um, is it right or wrong to reference that previous argument that you have both sort of repented and forgiven each other?
0: Oh, sorry. So the, the question was um, if you've had some fight in the past yeah. um, and then you have the same fight again months later, yeah. not weeks, but months, um, then is it right to reference that original fight? Okay. I
1: like what Tom said in his talk in that um, you reference how God forgives us, where he remembers our sin no more, not in the sense. He experiences amnesia but he never brings it up it's very so t- i think it'd be totally wrong to bring up something you've forgiven um definitely wrong in the sense where you bring it up in frustration of it. you've done this three so that i'm sure you agree with that um does that mean you can never bring it up like in, uh, for like constructive purposes i think there may be a, a context where you know, you're growing together, but I don't think that that time would be when you're having the same argument about the same thing. So that's obviously attention that you've forgiven. that you deal with the issue that you're dealing with now. You've already forgiven that. Don't bring it up. But um, if it's something that it's my weakness and she's lovingly um, trying to help me, or vice versa, I think it, it can be constructively done. Where I may have a weakness, and and I'm even asking for accountability. I need help with this area and um, I think it can be done but definitely not if it's another argument about the same thing no, you've already forgiven that, that bring it up that would be my take
0: on it so what you're saying is you can't use it as ammunition definitely and you probably shouldn't bring it up in that situation but then later on you might have a conversation where it's like hey I just want to talk about the fact that i have noticed this pattern in our life I want to talk about how can we move we forward yeah, yeah do you have anything to say Chris no, I think that good. very good
1: I'm yes, I am. In
3: uh, I'm not asking for my friend, but I'm asking <laughs> <laughs> for Oh, good, owning it. I like <laughs> it. Uh, as uh, Rob uh, spoke about, or oh, you asked me a question, and he said your wise answer. Uh, so my question is: in uh, First Peter chapter three, those first seven verses, is there any link, or what do you think? Why? Uh, Wife's part is spoken first and then the men's part. Why not men's and wife later? Is there any thinking uh, behind that saying if wife does that, then men will respect her, uh, husband will respect her, or when wife does that, then husbands will respect or so on?
0: So the question is. Um, that there's the wives first and then the men in 1 Peter 3. Same is true, by the way, in Ephesians 5. It's wives first, then husbands. And I'm saying, is there, a, is there any reason, logical flow for having it that way? Should the men only... Is, is the men's duty dependent on the wife's
1: duty? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I I looked at that a little bit. So when I came up with the funny answer and the question in my head, I tried to sort of see if there's any theological reason for six verses and only one verse. And the same thing with Ephesians 5. Why is it addressing the wife's first and and then the husband's? I didn't look at it too too in depth. I couldn't find, or for what I looked at, I couldn't find any theological reason, maybe uh, Chris or uh, Tom can, for that structure, addressing the wife first and then... Uh, Now, one thing's for sure, and uh, Tom touched on it in his talk, forgetting about the structure, it is our responsibility to be the initiators. Just like Christ initiated his love to us, as husbands, it is our responsibility to be the initiators of love, initiators of forgiveness. This is part of our responsibility as uh, leaders of the home. Otherwise, you know, we're practicing dictatorship. So um, other than him just addressing wives first and then husbands, I would see clearly um, in the text that the husband is the initiator and he ought to love his wife as Christ loved the church and she's a responder to that love. So in a perfect marriage, he's the initiator and she's the responder. Similar to our salvation, he's the initiator of his great love and salvation. He's the one that came and uh, seeks and saves the loss and we're the responders of that love. We love him because he first loved us and I see that the responsibility to the man, and I dare say, not that um, we bear the responsibility of our children, because Ezekiel's very clear about that, or bear the sins, should I say, of our children or of our wives, but I dare say it is our responsibility um, as husbands um, to uh, uh, like, it's my responsibility to make sure that my wife is uh, being nourished, is living a good life, so if she's frustrated or if she's um, I take responsibility for that. I need to please her. I need to love her. I need to um, take responsibility. But regarding the specific question, I can't find any significant theological reasoning why he's addressed the wife. I can find in the text, cover to cover, that man is responsible. He should be the initiator. I don't find any reasoning why he's addressed six verses the um, So...
2: I'm just going off your notes, but my my general feeling is there's a theme in 1 Peter, this idea that God has elected you, uh, God has uh, sent Jesus, and God is also going to, well, Jesus is going to come back again, and there's a future to deal through, and so in light of this, in this world, we're to live godly in Christ. We tend to read the Bible and think, this verse is for me. why is this verse not for me? And then when we become really, really generous, we'll think about the Bible as, this is for my family so we can have a happy life. The Bible's not about either one of those things. The primary message of the Bible is God. The primary purpose of the Bible is to declare the glory of God. The primary, if you like, purpose is to turn us from being selfish people who think the Bible's about me and how I can have a happy family to start thinking about God and His glory. And so, uh, Peter, when he's talking to Christians who are living in a totally unjust world, he says, you be nothing like that. You be godly. And so the first place he goes, well, he goes to multiple places, but he starts off with, you've got an imperfect government, submit to them. Be peaceful and godly. You've got an imperfect workplace, submit to them. And be godly. Either that they're ungodly, you be godly. And so then he says, by the way, in the family this is the same thing as well. You've got an ungodly husband, can you be godly? So you as a wife... You see, being godly in an ungodly government situation is really a battle, isn't it? It's a matter of whether you're going to fear or whether you're going to put faith in God. Because if you're going to fear your government, you're going to follow the ungodly pattern of your government. If you're working in a godless workplace, and they say it's world pride, and so you've got to turn up and you know celebrate and jump up and down like another. Uh, the question is, are you going to be fearful? Or are you going to have faith and submit to God and be godly in the workplace, Godless workplace? Well, then you come to the family,
0: There is no dependency in terms of if if your wife submits, you should love her, or if your husband loves you, you should submit to him. No dependency whatsoever. There are individual commands to each of us. It is absolutely possible to be a godly, submissive wife to an unloving tyrant of a husband, and it is absolutely possible to be a loving, generous husband to an unsubmissive, disrespectful wife. Um, however... They are symbiotic. So as you love your wife, she will respect you more. And if you respect your husband, he will respond in love more. It's how we're built. Um, It generally works that way.
1: I agree with Chris that even though there was the first six verses addressing my wife, in that one verse of 1 Peter 3.7, I think actually there's a whole lot more in that one verse than those first six verses, which I um, didn't spend too much time on, so forgive me for that. But um, just to to the other point, um, it's true that uh, also in Ephesians it it starts with addressing the wife then the husband, but then when he gives his summary in uh, Ephesians 5.33, he says, Nevertheless, let each one of you so particular love his own wife. So he starts with the husband and then says, and let the wife see that she reverences her husband. Uh, Sorry, um, Oh, no, it doesn't. Sorry. Nevertheless, each one of you Oh So he dresses the husband first. Sorry. So he reverses it in his summary. He dresses the husband first and then the wife. Yeah, Bob. I was going to
0: say, from what
1: I understood at the time, women had no rights
0: in, in, in larger marriage in
3: that. Um, so, also, is there anything about just positioning the wife and who knew?
5: Where she sits in a new way first, and it's been time talking about that to give some sort of a
0: general framework structure, and then talking about the man. that's yeah, it's in that. the yeah, that Yeah, a, yeah. framework? Cool? Yeah, uh, I don't know if that requires too much comment. But your your comment is that uh, yeah. in the first century, the Christian view of women was a radical position. And so perhaps that's why for Peter and Paul with that first. Yeah, could be helpful.
5: Any yeah. other questions? Eddie? Sorry. Um, just going back sort of what Eddie asked about seeking advice from outside you know, counselors and couples and that. If a wife comes to you or your wife and asks for advice on say submitting something that her husband's requested and let's say it's something that well, I think if it's a, a biblical thing, we can all easily say no. You submit to your husband, but let's say it's an unbiblical thing. Say you know, not going to church this weekend, or stop reading you up, something like that. How would you sort of try to keep to the hierarchy that the scripture gives us, but also you know desire for her for the Christ, above her husband? Which
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll go first what about that? just because it's it's, it is a hard question um, so the the challenge there is that often um, individuals in a couple seek advice elsewhere to use as ammunition when they get back into the relationship which you don't want to be a part of um, so that said sometimes you get situations where both parties are not going to come and talk and there is real problems um, and so how do you advise one where where the other is not willing to talk I think it's good to um, to talk to both of them and to just be open and frank about that and say look I'm happy to think, you know, help you think about what the Bible says about that particular situation but I'm going to go and talk to your husband about it as well. Yeah. Um, and I think you should
2: too. Yeah, you could do something like that. Definitely not easy. Yeah. Um, so I, once again, think the means of God are so critical. So, firstly, you've got the Word of God. And so if both husband and wife are actually putting themselves under the word of God. Uh, You have to trust God to start doing your work. Uh, You've been given prayer, you should be praying as well. And so the general temptation is to think if we talk about it and if we get to have this really long, deep and meaningful discussion, it will sort of fix everything up. But it really only fixes with repentance and uh, faith. And Rob said, you're not going to change your husband, you're not going to change your wife. God does all the changing. And so you have to, once again, in the first place submit to means. But one of those means is actually going and talking to someone. And then, when it gets to that point, what Tom said, I would totally agree with. Uh, You've got to talk. Uh, And if, for instance, one party doesn't, well... It's really the church's job to go and talk to that party anyway. Um, I would say that's fair enough. Uh, one thing I will say, say this, is one means, and I'll say this mainly to the women um, that Rob actually mentioned, is that you actually win them without word. And so there's a sense in which that is also one of the means most like, you given, know, uh, the submission in it. Un- uh, just situation. So it's easy for a man to yeah. say us from the front or <coughs> harder for a woman to do. Um does that answer your question little?
4: Yeah.
1: We ask you yeah. for George? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, would you guys like uh, say one of the reasons why like the yeah.
3: address of women task that's been asked of a woman to submit to an imperfect man is a lot greater than. Um, I don't know if it's a lot greater, but for a man to submit to a perfect God, to ask of a woman to submit to an imperfect man, we you say that the brother of the here and the uh, encouraging the woman to walk through that task,
4: ask of them? to submit to an
0: important man to uh, to a man. Yeah, So just repeating the question, um, if I can paraphrase, is it harder for a woman to submit to a man than it is for a man to do his duty? And perhaps is that why? Or the There's a reasons
5: why they just yeah. first before the
1: man. I personally don't, don't, I, I think it's true that it is hard for the woman to submit, especially now that we're in a state of sin. Um... But I don't think that's the reason why it's put first. I think what Chris uh, said um, is the reason why it's structured that way. That is in one Peter in chapter two is addressing the subject of submission. So you live in a hostile world. So those of you that have harsh masters submit. Those of you that uh, have harsh government submit. And then on the same topic, uh, those of you ladies that are also in a functional role of submission also submit then he addresses the men. So I think um, that's the structural reason for it. But there's no doubt that um, that it's uh, that the woman's functional role to submit before the fall was also given to us as, a, as an instruction. That's God's beautiful makeup. So it wasn't as a result of the fall. But the fall did make it harder. Um, uh, and it's also hard for the man to lay down his life for imperfect life. So he's called to even die for his wife. So that's a big calling as well. So both, I don't think one is greater than the other. They're both uh, shown called. But I do believe that um, man being the head is responsible, just like in a football team, if a football team plays badly, the coach takes the responsibility. Even though the players may have played badly, he's still responsible to get the best out of them. And the husband's responsible as being the leader to bring the best out of his wife. Um, so, I think ra- uh, rather than looking at the structure, that is the gist of the, the scripture cover to cover. That's the husband's responsibility uh, to do it. But I do like what Tom just said a moment ago. It, it is a bit of a circle. When you love your wife as Christ loved the church, she'll reverence you. When she's showing you that reverence, um, you love her better. So, even when I should be the initiator, but even when I'm lousy and I see my wife still reverence me, she turns me around more than a thousand words. She just makes it so much easier. To just, you know, do what I should have done, even if she didn't do that, because it is my responsibility to be be the initiator. But when she um, still does it anyway, and God has blessed me with a a wonderful, godly wife, and um, she makes it so much easier for me. Yeah, Matthew. Just one
5: question around um, kids and how kids can sort of rob us of, uh, like, you're talking, you you highlight the importance of communication. Um, and the time that kids really consume as part of the day and sort of take that away. Um, do you have any advice or tips or anything like that for how we can ensure we're still communicating maximally and effectively even with kids, sort of distracting that?
0: So the question is, kids uh, take time and that takes time away from marriage. How can you maintain good communication in your marriage when you have kids? Early sleep.
2: Make it a rule. That would be my simple thing. But having said that... You mean for the kids,
0: right? For the kids, yeah. <laughs> uh, hang on. <laughs> when they get older, you go to bed early and let them go. <laughs> but uh, no,
1: uh, uh, that, that would be the simplest thing. Like, get them to bed early and you'll at least have an hour. Um... I think a big part of it is, like, contentment and embracing each season that God blesses us with. When there's contentment and I embrace the season uh, of children, I I can just make do with the season that I'm in. When I don't have uh, contentment, I can get more frustrated and that's going to kill communication and so forth. Um, But that said, that sounds very ideal, but that said, how do you practically do it? Because it is a very intensive a uh, busy season but um, I, I really appreciated Tom's talk it's something that um, must be prioritised that communication no communication like how Jay Adams puts a second chapter but uh, no communication there's going to be a build up and that's um, uh, yeah it's, we, we all prioritise that which is most important to us regardless what season we're in that communication needs to be prioritised if that means putting the kids to bed early or you go to bed early or Waking up earlier, you need to have um, date nights, and you need to have it needs to be a priority. And I do confess that I don't practice it as I should, but I have a very patient and gracious wife.
0: Um, maybe just one other little tip that uh, we've found is um, you can actually tell your kids, "Hey, like we're just going to have a time where we're going to talk. You need to like this is outside playtime or whatever. You need to go outside." We're going to have a cup of tea for fifteen minutes or whatever. Um, so if you if you train your kids in that, it won't happen perfectly every time, but that's you know you can you can make space in that sort of way.
1: may be helpful, but um, my wife and I get saved 20 years ago and um, we start growing as as Christians, so um, immodest dress was was normal. Something that uh, we didn't really think about, but then started reading the Bible, started growing. um, And I wanted to be obedient to the the Bible and I wanted to encourage my wife and so did she. So she gets saved and still dressed. uh, What she would consider today um, as a modest early on in a uh, Christian walk. Um, one thing that I, I never ever, God is my witness, wanted her to do it because I said so. Or uh, well, wanted her to address in a certain way. That being said, I was um, happy to communicate directly with her and uh, tell her what a man's mind thinks because she was oblivious to that, sincerely. Okay, so one thing I, I do even with my daughters in that, now God's uh, created you with beauty. God wants you to be beautiful. I don't want to suppress that. That is something that God has put in a girl's heart. I see my even little daughters looking at the mirror and flicking their hair. I don't want to suppress that. That's a beautiful thing that God um, has given them and, and so forth. But I explain to them that God still wants you to be modest and he wants you to save yourself for your husband. And So I have direct conversations uh, like that with them, and without giving them specific dress code and and uh, not allowing them to think through that, because they need to make that decision. Um, I encourage my wife and my daughters with um, that principle that we see in Scripture to when they decide to come and wear a certain uh, garment, think to yourself, am I... You know, dress in this way to get attention from others. Am I dressing this way to be pleasing to the Lord? And another thing, I get him to think about is this kind of dress going to cause another brother to stumble. You know, the common response: Well, that's his problem if he's got that, and it is his problem, and he needs to gouge out his eye and not look, regardless, and all the rest of it. Um, But at the same time, we have a responsibility. Each of us have a responsibility that we're not stumbling blocks. So I encouraged my wife that um, when you dress in public, uh, you need to consider, is what you're wearing uh, going to bring ungodly attention or cause somebody else to look at you in a lustful way? Just something for her you know, to encourage her with. Because she was actually oblivious. The guy's that bad. Do they actually um, think that way over, over what I'm dressing? in? I said, yeah, we're that bad. And yes, it is our problem. But um, especially when we come to church, like maybe you can help out a brother that's depraved in his problem. And I'd have these transparent conversations with her, but never, ever God is my witness and she'll testify to this day. Uh, with my children, they're under 18, so it's a bit different. I'm buying their clothes. The, the, uh, my wife's buying their clothes, but once they come of age, I communicate to them. I don't care. What you dress, in the sense that my love for you is not dependent on how you behave. I love you unconditionally. Um, but uh, as a father, this is what I'm telling you pleases the Lord. This is what the Word of God is teaching. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but I thought I just uh, might might share that. That's helpful.
0: Perhaps one more question if you have If Anyone has one? Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's a question. I just wanted to ask that.
4: Um, I think just with the time, especially in the generation now, I think it's very slow the social media, expectation, pressure. Um, I think that when they have a good example at home, their mothers dressed obviously, um, reflecting the lives the kind of their parents, reflecting them with way they dress, how they present themselves um way of children as well um, absolutely yeah because they're with a lot if they see that it will help them not really discern um that's a proper way to dress and you know, like you're saying to um, minimize the stumbling of others in costing men i have a question for me okay
2: uh Rock- a comment about our prayers being hindered. Uh, you want to comment on that?
1: I think I've said, Tom, is there not a sort of comment? No, it's all once we become the true children of God, when God regenerates us, we respond in faith and repentance. We become children of God and never lose our salvation. Um, that being said, as Christians, as the children of God, um, we can see the Holy Spirit of God. We can, um, through our uh, unrepentance, um, hinder our relationship with God, uh, in, like as in talking terms. Think about it when you're angry or when you're sinfully angry. I can't pray when I'm sinfully angry. I can't pray just after I've had a big argument, a heated argument with my wife. Um, and in this sense, uh, if, you know, our prayers can be hindered, that sort of um, that communication with God can be hindered in that sense. And this is, uh, I think why it's important that we do not let the sun go down on our wrath as the word of God um, instructs
0: us in principle. So you're saying there's like an organic hindrance. You won't be able to pray as effectively. And and I I would maybe add that there's, I think there's God saying, even if you can be so hypocritical as to um, approach God whilst despising your wife, he, he, it.
1: He, he even says um, when you come to the temple and you have all against your brother uh, leave a gift that the also go and reconcile and then come back and worship so he doesn't receive worship with hypocritical worship or with you know unconfessed sin, and that's why we need to um, our repentance and faith unto salvation leads to a daily faith and repentance and that should be practiced in marriage
2: the daily faith, the daily repentance, daily confession. The, the one thing, what Tom says, I think I'm sort of getting at We tend to think prayers are, what are the things I want from God, and if I don't treat my wife nicely, I won't get the things that I want from God. I, I don't think that's what that verse is speaking about. I think what it's speaking about is our relationship with our wife, if it's off, will actually mean we, we will just not have freedom of discussion or freedom of conversation with God and this idea that we consider prayers not to be I want something, but prayers to be how wonderful you are and giving God praise and thanks and actually interacting with Him about something from His Word it actually does our relationships uh, are did not just
0: Normally if our relationship with God is hindered, our relationship with people is hindered, here the other way it works as well. Alright, so that will do for the Q&A. Just before we close, I'd like to leave you with a very short little charge from the Scriptures. Genesis uh, chapter 2, 23 to 25 says this, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be full of woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they will both naked, to man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here we have the ideal for marriage. Um... Marriage before sin, without the influence of sin, it's the sort of marriage that we should all strive for. And you see three things here, that Adam rejoices over his wife. And as we've seen, marriage is about love and relationship, and that love should be spoken, declared, acted on, and displayed. Uh, here's my last little quote from the letter. This one's from a, a guy called Helmuth von Moltke, a German Christian in World War II. He was tried for conspiring against the Nazi party and was sentenced to death. And his last letter to his wife, he wrote this. You were not one of God's agents to make me what I am. Rather, you are myself. You are my 13th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. There's a great little one. You put that in your notes. Without this chapter, no human being is truly human. I should not think of saying that I love you That would be quite false. Rather, you are the one part of me which would be lacking if I were alone. This was the the cry of Adam when he saw Eve. Um, And what he's getting at is the the next thing that we see, which is that Adam and Eve are one flesh. They are on the same team. Um, Paul says that if we love our wife, we love ourselves. Um, Let that be clear in our minds that we are one flesh. May that flow through in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. May we seek unity, sympathy, love, blessing, truth, and peace. What else would suffice for a relationship that's as intimate as marriage? And on that we see Adam and Eve in deep intimacy. They were both naked, man and his wife, and with no ashamed. Certainly speaking of physical nakedness, but it's more than that. They were intimate. They opened their hearts to each other. After all, they were one flesh. They were in a secure relationship of love and mutual affection and care and honor and respect. Certainly because sin had not entered the world, they had nothing to hide. They had no shame. They enjoyed free and full fellowship. But through Jesus Christ, even though we are sinful, we can have redeemed marriages that reflect something of Eden.
2: May um, God uh, help us as we strive towards that. Thank you, Christian, for your Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you are our God. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for Him uh, who has taken people who the once Father and
3: brought us by His blood. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And we do once again pray that you will forgive us for our many sins. But we thank you also for uh, the wonderful love of God and the love of Jesus.
2: And we pray that even in our marriages that uh, this will be evidenced in everyday
4: life. And we pray that we will bring you glory.